How are we doing? Um, I need the, if I could get the remote for the, for the uh, video there, that would be great. So we're, as we've been announcing, thanks John, we've just been uh, promoting a lot over the last few weeks um, that we're going to do a four-week series on being a community of worship. And somebody said, what? We're the vineyard. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, when we think kind of we've, we've, we've arrived or we understand or we think something, that's sometimes church history shows that's one of the most fatal places to be. It, re- it reminds me of a, a documentary I saw a couple of years ago on the Blue Book. This is a book this guy did where he, he interviewed 100 centenarians around the world. And, uh, you know, found, found out what was the key to their, their long life and, and the fact that they'd lived to be 100 and over. And, and during the documentary, it fascinated me that they found that the two highest uh, ages of mortality, or times of mortality in a person's life, there are two very, very peak uh, periods of mortality in, uh, in people's lives. And the first is the first year of their, their life when they're born. Right? That first year, if they make it through there, then their chances are pretty good to, to live. But the other time that there's a, there's a high risk is guess. Anybody remember? I've said this before. huh? The year they retire, the, the, the mortality rate just spikes right up again. Isn't that interesting? And, and I think there is something in us that God has wired us to always, no matter what plateau we've reached, to keep reaching. Paul said, in, in terms of knowing and loving God, he said, I, I forget what's behind, and I press to the mark that's before. And, and I feel that God is calling us as a church corporately to press into this. And it's not some kind of change of direction from our fall series. Like, oh, that was justice. That was Micah 6.8. Now we're going to go on to worship. This is totally a part of that. It's, it's still building on that. And, and in fact, I believe it will uh, enhance uh, that so much. And so... Um, I have worksheets available. If you got your green little sheet there, there's a, there's a set of notes on the back that you can follow for reference, maybe to help you say, is this guy going anywhere at all? Might help you, help you with that. Um, Patrick Wicker, who used to be... Uh, I, have you got my slideshow? Well, how many remember Patrick Wicker? He was, uh, he was our, my assistant pastor here for a few years, big Texan guy. But he sent me a, uh, uh, Susan, it's my sermon. Yeah, it's called, I think it's just the, the title is Community and Worship. You know, we got to make sure that we get this worship stuff down. So Patrick posted on our church Facebook the Tim Hawkins handbook on official worship signals. And uh, there's 
four levels. There's rookie, intermediate, there's pro, and there's expert. And uh, at the bottom it has warning, violent horizontal movement in worship and the waving of oversized flags is strictly prohibited and will result in immediate ejection. But you'll see there at the top, um, there, this is the rookie, so there's, this is the elbow flap, carry the TV position, go big screen. And then here, you're, now you're moving into an intermediate. My fish was this big. Come, Lord. Uh, hold my baby. And I don't know what Mufasa means. What is that? Huh? Oh, Lion King. Okay, I knew I was going to get scorned out for that. And then pro is dueling light bulbs. See that there? Goal posts and heartburn there. See that? And then these hands is the pointer, the hatchet, and the schoolroom. See that there? And then the expert is the village people, Rocky, and touchdown. There you go. Anyway, silly boy, Patrick. Okay. So, to, what, what engendered us going into this series? Believe it or not, it, maybe you do believe it, it, it started with a, a, a fatigue that I began to feel a while ago. It's been, been long running. I talked a little bit about it in my lament that I did at the end of the year last year uh, of this fatigue. And, it, you know, ministry is fatiguing. It's, it, you spend your life, you give, and you pour out. And uh, there's the normal fatigue that comes with it. But the fatigue that I was struggling with was, it seemed to be uh, beyond that. In, in, in a scary way, it felt like a fatigue of, of, of the mind, a fatigue of, of ideas. It was like, uh, all the things that I used to do don't work anymore. And every new idea that comes along doesn't work either. And it was just this sense of almost futility and frustration. And I talked to some of you about it. I've talked to some of our elders. I talked to my spiritual director. And he, he looked at me and he said, hmm, did you ever think the Holy Spirit might be fatigued too? <laughs> you know, he kind of looked at me. And... Uh, I thought that was a good question. I'll probably get back to that through the series. But it made me think. And I found the other day, in fact, I think it was in my reading yesterday, a biblical description of the fatigue, a fantastic description of it. It's in the Bible. And it's the story where Jesus, remember they're having sound troubles in his sermon? Sound difficulties? Remember that? And they said, hey, we figured it out. Get in a boat on the water. And the water will project your, your voice. And he preached to a multitude from the boat. Well, he found out the boat belonged to this guy named Peter. And he looked over at Peter and he saw this weary look on Peter. And he said, Peter, let's go fishing. Launch into the deep and let down your nets. And Peter kind of gave him this tired look. He said, Lord, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. I've done all that my experience and skill has taught me, and, and, it's, and it's, it's given me nothing. And, well, if you say so, it was kind of like, you need to know, Lord. I'm the expert in fishermen. And then Peter experienced a John Wimber moment. Remember? It, it kind of went like this. Peter looked at, Jesus looked at Peter and kind of winked at him, and he said, Peter, I've seen your fishing. I'm going to show you mine. Right? And so they go fishing, and, and you know the story. There's this incredible 
catch a fish. But I related with Peter's fatigue. It was like, Lord, we've done all the right things, said the right words, prayed the right prayers, we've fasted, we've repented out of our yin-yang, which, by the way, is Vancouver repentance, right? Uh, we, but we haven't, we haven't caught anything yet. We've, we've fasted and prayed until, until no more tears will come. And the Lord, and it's like the, I hear the Lord saying with this little chuckle in his voice, let down the nets again. Do it again. Try it again. And, and there's this sense in me that's the same in Peter's. Lord, as long as you've said it, as long as it's you, we'll do it. At your word, if it's about obedience, it's non-negotiable. And, and I think there's, they say, they, uh, they say that Abraham Lincoln um, was, was a, a great man of prayer. And often before speeches, he would spend time in prayer. And, and a lot of people, before they uh, speak, they'll say, Lord, without you, I will fail. How many have ever prayed a prayer like that? Without you, I will fail. Abraham Lincoln's prayer was this, Lord, without you, I must fail. I must fail. Isn't that a great prayer? In other words, God, if you're not in it, I don't even, I don't even want to be doing it, let alone succeeding. I don't even want to be doing this if you're not in it. What a great prayer. So, what has that got to do with worship? Well, it's this. Whoops. Oh, I just love that picture. We'll have, to, we'll have to keep going back there. What happens in this kind of fatigue is it forces you back to basics. Maybe you haven't experienced that kind of fatigue in ministry. Maybe you have. But maybe in other areas of your life, maybe it's the fatigue of a relationship that you just think, this isn't going anywhere. Maybe it's a son or a daughter that's struggling in rebellion or uh, just, you know family conflict or financial stuff or maybe it's a chronic sickness or but you just feel like you've done all the right things and the question is what do you do as a church when you're at that point of fatigue and I've heard the Lord saying you do what you know to do don't try to figure out what you don't know do what you do know and we know we know some basic things there's some certain things I know that I don't need to pray about I don't need to pray about loving God. I don't need to pray about loving you. Although sometimes I need to pray a little more about that, but I don't need to pray about it. I need to pray about how to do it, but I don't need to pray about evangelism. I don't need to pray about healing the sick or casting out demons or bringing the kingdom of God to Vancouver. I don't need to pray about that stuff. I don't need to pray about, Lord, should I be filled with the Holy Spirit today? How I many know it says, keep on being filled? That's, that's what God says. Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's basics. And I said, okay, Lord, I can, I can live with that. The prophet Isaiah said, in, uh, in returning and rest you will be saved. In quietness and confidence will be your strength. Now, how many have heard that verse quoted before? Four of you. All right. We've got to get some biblical literacy happening here. Have you never seen a plaque in a Christian's house? It's usually on somebody's plaque somewhere, you know. Um, but, you know, a lot of us don't realize that the next verse, what the next verse says, it's, you know, quiet in repentance and returning you'll be saved. In quietness and confidence will be your strength. The very next verse says, but you said no. 
we will ride on wild horses. And God says, okay, I'll let you ride. You go until you're just like a lone flagpole on the top of a mountain. When we're driving to Banff and Calgary, sometimes from Vancouver to go see our family, there's this one mountain, just the last mountain before you get out into the foothills and the prairies, and you see this one lone little flagpole <laughs> sitting right at the very top of it. And I've heard God say so many times, that's you, son. That's you. Right? So what are the basics? What are the basics that God is asking us to return to? And I'm saying us today. This is a corporate word. Um, what is it that as a church, if, if God was to pare us down and, and he was to say to, to us, I want you to stop doing everything except what is absolutely essential for what it is to be a church, the church. What are those essentials? What are the non-negotiables where if we stop doing them, we are no longer church? And uh, there's a lot of discussion about that these days, by the way. And um, it's interesting that Jesus entered a similar conversation with a Jewish uh, legal expert of the law, the Torah, who came up to him and, and, and he asked Jesus a similar question. He said, Lord, if we were to disregard everything else in the Jewish law, what would be left? What would be the most important that we were to be left with? And so it's this that leads us to our text today in this discussion. In Mark chapter 12, it says one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Let's read verses 29 to 31 together. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I'll just read this. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. When I was thinking about this, the Westminster Catechism, the very term popped into my mind. You know what that is? Anybody know what the Westminster Catechism is? It's basically the way that a lot of the high churches, the Anglican, I think the Presbyterians, actually disciple their children and prepare them for the com communion and to be c confirmed. And, and uh, it, it's a wonderful uh, way. It's been, I think it, it has, you know, for our time, it has to be a bit renewed. And, but the way that they structure it is with questions. It's a series of questions. They'll ask the question, then they give the answer with a biblical foundation for it. Does anybody know what the first question of the Westminster Catechism is. Yeah. John, got it. I'm going to buy you coffee, John. What is the chief end of humanity, or man, the old, old language says? What is the chief end of humanity? And what is the answer? Humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to love God, enjoy Him forever. 
In summary, now, it, it, this is a bit of a summary of the great commandment. And I'm not going to take a lot of today, or probably in this series, Alec or John might, but I'm that part that says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now, remember, he's not talking about you out there in the week on your own. He's talking about us as a body, corporately. What does that look like? Wayne Cordero, who pastors New Hope Church in Honolulu, Honolulu says it like this. He says, to do something with all your heart is to do it as if your life depended on it. In other words, if I'm going to preach as an act of love to God, I will do this. I will preach every sermon as if my life depended on it. And I usually do, actually. I, I, I take this pretty seriously. I take our times together seriously. I feel like our lives depend on this. I feel what we do here. And, and if I can be a gentle, loving pastor, it really hurts me when people walk in consistently halfway through worship, Sunday after Sunday, and I have to say, is this something that you're doing as if your life depended on it? Okay, I still, I mean, still love me, even though I said that. Okay, just crushed a few golden cows. Hallelujah. But Alex, my buddy, and he's tough, so watch out. So, he used to be my buddy. All right. Now, how many have ever heard of the Calgary Flames? Gordy Gibosh just left, so I can tell this story. <laughs> Ryan has moved to Calgary, so we're okay. I think we're safe. But a few weeks ago, the Calgary Flames came into Vancouver, not in very good shape, and they beat the Canucks 3-1. to one. I've been praying forgiveness prayers and things like that, but they beat the Canucks 3-1. Now, here's what I don't understand about sports. You've got a team like the, the flames that will then go into the Boston Garden and, and, and they lost. Does anybody know the score? It was 9 nothing. Okay, that's embarrassing. Okay, that is just not cool. All right? To go into a building and get beat 9 nothing. okay? It, I used to have a term for that when I was in sports. We stunk out the joint, all right? Um, I don't understand this. The Canucks go in yesterday in the Boston Garden, and I've been feeling pretty good since that. Why? Because they beat Boston, right? In the Boston Garden. So the team that beat Vancouver here goes into Boston, loses 9 nothing. Vancouver loses, they go into Boston, and they win 4-3. And so I, listen, I was listening to the commentary. I get a, good, a lot of good revelation when I watch Hockey Night in Canada, as long as it's... <laughs> As long as it's not Don Cherry. No, no, I'm just kidding. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, I, heard, I heard one of the commentators talking about urgency. That the difference between it, the, team, the, the league is so equal right now. The teams are so equal that the difference is a sense of urgency. And that's what happens in the playoffs, isn't it? They start playing. They put their bodies on the ice. They put their hearts out on the ice. And so I want to ask you this morning. I want to ask each one of us. Are you doing what you do for God as an offering to Him as if your life depended on it? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, and that's not the point of my message today, but I just felt the Holy Spirit impress on me that, that there is a sense of urgency that I often don't feel in North America, but I feel when I go to other countries of the world that are suffering, like in Korea when we were there uh, a few years ago, uh, in China. There's a sense of urgency. 
that I think God wants to, to restore, a healthy urgency. Now, there can be an unhealthy urgency. So there's an important caution that comes to this. There's a corrective that comes to this with the second question in the catechism. Does anybody know what that one is? Any good Anglicans here? All right, the second question in the catechism goes like this. What rule has God given us? Whoop. What rule? Oh, we're having fun here. This thing is, uh, there we go. Sorry, that was my fault. I hit the wrong button. What rule has God given us to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Anybody know the answer? What rule has God given us to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God forever. Worship of God and love for Him is our most important calling and commandment, and the Scripture provides us with the directives on how to do that. And the failure to do that has often, as you've read in the Bible, been fatal. There's, There's many examples in the Old Testament where people did not follow God's directive in worship, and it caused death. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Uh, probably the, the example that we're most familiar with was that time that a- David wanted to, bring, wanted to bring back the ark to Jerusalem. How many did your homework and read the readings? First Chronicles 13, First Chronicles 15. Uh, that's it, doing it as if your life depended on it. That's good, yeah. All right, okay. Um, <clears throat> So David longed to bring the ark back. And, the, and the, the, why was the ark so important to David? It represented the presence of God. And I think it ringing in David's ears was that conversation that, that God had had with Moses. Do you remember this one on the mountain? Where God said to Moses probably the most incredible thing God could say to any of us. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And do you remember what Moses' response was? He says, if you don't go with us, then don't send us. He said, for how else will anyone distinguish us from any other people on the earth? Is it our great music? Is it our art? Is it our great preaching? Is it our talent? Is it our abilities? Is it our building and our parking lots? Hey, let's get air-conditioned seats. Let's get a good roomy parking lot. Let's get... Whatever, you know, that's the key. Let's market this thing. Let's drive this engine. Hallelujah. Let's get a hot website. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But what is it that distinguishes us from any other people on the earth? Moses said it's the presence of God. Worship is about being a people of the presence of God. And David was so acutely aware of this that under Saul, Israel had been defeated and the ark had been kidnapped by the Philistines caused all kinds of problems for their gods. Their gods were falling flat down on their face and people were breaking out in all kinds of tumors. And they said, this is not good. So they sent the ark, trucking back with an ox, back to Israel. And it ended up in one guy's place. And a lot of people said, hey, cool, the ark's here. And about 70 people died as they were looking inside and playing with it. 
And then it, during the reign of Saul, it was never inquired of. It was never looked to. It was never valued during Saul's reign. But when David became king, he said, we, we've got to be a people. And he had this longing for the presence of God. And so he said, let's bring the ark back. And everybody got really excited. And they said, that's a, that's a great idea. Let's bring the ark back. It seemed right to everybody. But the problem was, as Floyd McClung says, it was doing God's work man's way, which always leads to death. And so they were all having a party. They were singing and they were dancing and the tambourines were going. And the ark was on the back of this. They, they had a nice new state-of-the-art ox cart, right? It was varnished. And, oh, was, man, that'll impress people. They'll want to come to our church. Look at that ox cart, right? And they hit, they hit a bump in the road. The ox hit a bump in the road, and the ox cart looked like the ark. It looked like God was going to fall off the cart. And there's this guy named Uzzah who really, he, he said, well, I'm gifted. I can fix this. And he tried to steady it, and he dies. And David was really PO'd, man. He was mad. He was mad at, he was pretty ticked off at God. He, Have you ever been mad at God? Come on now. Your halo's on crooked. And, and he, he said, Lord, I've done all of this. I've done all, look at what I did for you, and this is what we end up with. Right? He's frustrated. And so the ark was left at the house of this guy, Obanidim, and the, the, for three months, God just blessed him. His house was blessed. His sheep started giving birth, and man, the crops just start. You know, and three months later, people said to David, hey, maybe you should go back and check into this again. God's really blessing this guy. So three months later, the scenario is repeated, where David comes back and gets the ark, this time, everything goes well. He's so excited. He dances before the Lord with all his might. He was the, most dignif- he was the highest chief dignity in the whole celebration. He was the most undignified guy as he was dancing. And what was the difference? What was the difference between that time and three months ago? Well, his words are very interesting. He said to, he said to the priests and the Levites... Uh, He said to them, he said, you guys are supposed to carry the ark. You are the ones who are supposed to do it. Now listen to what he says. Ooh, he's getting a bit tense when he's doing He says, because you did not do this, the Lord broke out against us. Where were you? Where were the ones who were supposed to carry that ark? He said, I had the vision, I had the desire. But I'm not the one that God said in the book of the law to take that ark, put it with poles, and for priests to carry it on the shoulders. There were people that were called. And one of the things that causes death in a church is we've got this vision that we want to do, and we're so eager to see it happen, we step out of our calling, out of our gifting to do it. And the greatest culprits of that are pastors and those who love them and want to try to help them out. It's very important. I think there's a difference between doing chores, which I'm willing to do anything. Clean toilets. I've cleaned toilets this week. I don't care what the job is. I'm not beneath, I'm not above any job. But the key is, what is your focus? Where, Where is your power spot, we used to call it? Your sweet spot, right? That place where you just feel like Eric Liddell, God's pleasure. Like, I feel God's pleasure. Can I be honest with you? Right now because of what I'm doing. I know I'm called to do this. 
right? And you have the same thing where God's called you. You feel his laugh. It's like a laugh, right, Simon? You just you hear him go, <laughs> I just love that. I love that about you. I, love, I just love watching you run. I love watching you work with those kids. I love watching, I, I love, I, as you lead worship, I love whatever that calling is. There's a joy of God that's your strength in that. But then David, he's a good leader. He's a good leader. He doesn't, st- he doesn't just say, where were you? He goes this, he says, says we did he takes the responsibility as a leader we did not inquire of the lord about how to do it in the prescribed way so they consecrated themselves and carried the ark of god with the poles on their shoulders as moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the lord first chronicles chapter 15 they took time to wait they took time to inquire they took time to listen and to me, that's the power spot of this message, of, of this scripture. We always jump to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And we miss this part. There's a whole sentence there, folks. This whole, we cannot understand worship without this bit. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's three things. Number one, it's hear, O Israel. It's not hear, O Chris or John or Steve it's not, it's here, oh, it's to a people. It's a corporate call. You're called, you, plurality, are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's, it's a corporate call to loving Him. That's why a lot of us guys have a problem being called the bride of Christ. I don't want to, you know, it's kind of this, Jesus is my boyfriend theology. And there's a lot, I was reading this pastor this week who was reading, he doesn't even use that analogy in his men's groups. Because the men go, get out of here, man. I, I'll be an army. I'll be, you know, maybe the body. But we're not. I'm not a bride. I'm not somebody's bride. You know, and some of those songs, take me into your inner chamber. You know, it's kind of like, oh, gross, man. Right? You know what the problem is? Is we think we're so individualistic. We think we, we're thinking about ourselves. I am not the bride. If you're a woman here, sorry, Lisa, you are not the bride of Christ. Sorry. We are. We are. Everybody say, we are. We are are the bride of Christ. It's a corporate thing. But too often we think individually. So first of all, it's a corporate command. Secondly, it begins with hearing. And thirdly, it's a response to the revelation of God. Now I want to walk through those three things in closing just to uh, expand them a little bit. Worship is first of all corporate. As I said, I'm not the bride, you're not the bride, we are. And, and Scripture is very strict about worshiping in independence. God told the children of Israel, when you go into the land, don't just offer your offering anywhere. I talk to so many people that say, well, I tithe here, and I give there, and I do this, and, and that I go to church here this Sunday, and then I go to that church that Sunday, and, and God... It's God kind of tolerated. You feel this annoyance that he had with Israel when they, they were called high places in the Old Testament where they would offer kind of in their own place of choice. And God kind of tolerated it. You get a feeling in an annoyed way, but sometimes he was really, really furious with it. But his desire was that they would come together, young and old, children, youth, adults, men, women, seniors, multicultural, to the place that he would choose, he gave careful instructions. First, 
The tabernacle in the wilderness was to be the central location for them to come and offer their worship. The tabernacle was symbolic of God living with His people, God, God's presence among them. And that ark, of course, being the ultimate of that. And then that was transferred to the temple that basically was built by David. Now you look at me, some of you that are scholars, and going, no, David didn't build it. Well, actually, he did. God gave David the blueprint. God gave David all the instructions. You know what all Solomon did was follow what David told him to do. It was, it was a Davidic temple. In fact, in the New Testament, it says, calls it the tabernacle of David, the tent of David, this temple of David. And it's because of the Davidic worship. And the New Testament understanding of worship is with a, a David background to them. We, we can't understand worship as the church unless we understand the heart of David and, and, and the instructions he gave because the New Testament took their cues from the, 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 the whole pattern of, of worship that David had established. And so there's not a lot of teaching in the New Testament about worship because they said, well, it's already there. They just, they just pick, carried on with, with the Davidic tradition, minus, of course, the sacrifices uh, that were instituted by Moses because of Christ's coming. And, and now we are the temple. We are now the house of God. The New Testament established that the, the temple is, is, is it, God has always desired that we would be his house and that, that his presence be among us. It doesn't mean that we, we lose our individuality or uniqueness, that we all of a sudden get lost, as Alec likes to say, into one giant brain. It's not like we're all just kind of melded together and there's no individuality. Yes, it's important to spend time alone with God. I spend, to, to paraphrase Paul, I spend time alone with God more than ye all. All right? I love spending time with God. I think in another life I would have been a hermit. I probably ended up some monastery in the top of a hill somewhere with smoke coming out of the chimney. and I'd give a message from God every couple of years. I'm, I'm oriented towards being a hermit, being an introvert. and being. I love that. I love it. But I also know enough about my humanity and about what is whole and right that I am only a part of a body. And I cannot experience and encounter God without my brothers and sisters and coming together with them and so any time that I spend time alone with God in worship, as Paul instructed us in the New Testament, it was to prepare ourselves to come together to edify Jesus and one another in the body of Christ. And a lot of his instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14, they're all even speaking in tongues. He said, speak in tongues, great. But if you're not doing it so that you can be built up to build up others, then it's just selfish. So in, in the Christian life, you know, we've got today iPhones, we've got iPod, we've got iPad, but there's no iWorship. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're supposed to like that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Secondly, worship begins with hearing. Hear, O Israel. First one is hear, O Israel. Second one, hear, O Israel. Why is a congregation, do you notice that we always stop at the beginning of our worship? And I love this. I love the way Alec led that this morning. It's right on. We stopped and we listened to the word. And we, we waited. We waited with that word. Now, you know, there's been times when my charismania days where the quiet times, the only quiet times we had was between breaths. Anybody been in a church like that? It's only quiet. And, and I think it's part of worship to give space to just wait on God and to listen. And to hear his word. And so I, I also believe that sermon teaching uh, from the word is part of worship. It's about listening. 
How much in God's word is about listening? The prophet cried out, Oh, if only Israel would have listened to me, the prophet cried out. Then I would have fed them with the finest of wheat. I would have given you honey from the rock. I would have quickly defeated your enemies. Here's John, the beloved, saying, Love, 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 love. What's John's message? Love, 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 love one another, love God, love one another, love one another. Do you love one another? Love, 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 love. Everywhere John spoke, they said, What's John speaking about? Duh. Right? He was the apostle of abiding love. But right in the middle of all that, he says the most wonderful words, one of my favorite words in the Bible. He says, this is love. Not that we love him, but that he loved us and gave himself. So God says, would you, first of all, before you think you can love me at all, you don't have any love to love me with, would you listen and would you let me tell you how much I love you and how crazy I am about you? Because it's in there. It's the good news. I had a funny experience just last night. Just last night. I, I sometimes suffer from insomnia. And uh, I developed this pattern a few years ago where I, I memorize whole chunks of scripture. So when I'm having trouble sleeping, I just start reciting sleep, scripture and I go to sleep. Problem was, you know, I, I memorized the whole book of Ephesians, but I know the first part a lot better than the last part because I always fall asleep halfway through, right? <laughs> So last night I'm trying to do this, right? I'm trying to, I'm trying to do this. <laughs> I can't sleep. And it's like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm going, and I, I'm somewhere in Ephesians 2. And I quote this scripture. Can you believe this, Kirsten? I can't. It's, it, it's where he says, He raised us up and made us sit together with him in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he may show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And I can't tell you how many times I've been saying that. You know, I just kind of wrote, go through it, and I fall asleep. This time, right in my, I'm laying in my bed and I go, whoa! <laughs> it's just, it just hit me. Whoa! I literally, the Holy Spirit just hit me. I was laughing and crying. And then I said, oh, i got to move on, man. So I, I moved on a little bit further. It says, remember, you were Gentiles. You were, you know, I used to say, well, my testimony is I used to be Ukrainian, right? Or whatever your background is. You were Gentiles, Paul says. You were without hope, without God in the world. Strangers of the covenants of promise, aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are afar off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now it's 3.30 in the morning. I'm trying to get to sleep. I literally, the bed was rocky. I felt sorry for my wife. She, she slept through it, she told me. But I, I just, I had this glory fit like in the middle of the night. This incredible reality. God. Why did he save you? That in the ages to come, he can just find creative, surprising ways to show you kindness. And he's just always got something up his sleeve, a surprise. One of the, one of the hardest points of my parenting life when my, my children were uh, very young was Daniel was five and Christian was eight. And we had planned this mission trip to England from Calgary and at home, near the end, we found out that we were not able to bring our children. And it was going to be 30 days. And it really took me by surprise. 
And I remember just the, my heart just ripped right out of me as we were hugging there. We left them with their grandparents in Calgary. And, and Danielle particularly was, was incredibly emotional about it. And, uh, and she just turned 30, actually, on, on uh, Thursday. And uh, she was so distressed about us going. And, and her grandma did one of those calendars where you can just cross off the days. And she just started counting off the days with her grandma, you know. 19 days left, 18 days left. Well, she didn't know what was happening in her daddy's heart because I just ached. My heart just ached every day. And God just opened doors. And I, we had this dramatic t- uh, th- team that would go on the streets and they did a good job with dance and music and they attracted huge crowds. And I would get up as kind of part of the play at the end of the play and I would just give a short five-minute sermon and give an altar call. And this was back in punk rock, alternative culture, England, below 1% church attendance, anti-God time. And we didn't have one time where just at least a dozen or even a handful, half a dozen, a dozen or even more people publicly gave their lives to Christ and some permanently became part of the the churches and the people in England were shocked. They just never saw conversions back in that time like that. They just didn't see it in those places we were going. And I got up every time and I would say to them, I have a son or a daughter back. I have a son and a daughter back in Canada. And I said, I am missing them terribly. And you know what? They, they have left a hole in my heart that if I lost them, nobody else could fill. And I would say that over and over again, and just the Holy Spirit would just come on that statement, and, and, and it was like God would just show each person in that crowd that they were a piece of his heart. A piece of his heart. And I remember when we finally got to go home, and we got back on the plane, and we got arrived in the Calgary airport, and our eyes were scanning, and I, all of a sudden I saw that little boy and that little girl and that little girl, she just beelined, her eyes just beaming, and she just headed, she was running so fast, and she hit me at full speed, she jumped, wrapped her little legs around me, wrapped her little arms, the problem was I was running on the same speed, that direction, man, we hit, and we just hugged and cried and laughed. Ah, man. Well, see, this, this, is, this is what your father thinks of you. Now, this is, this is her now, the one on the right, uh, just turned 30. What's neat is her daughter, Annalise, just is five, so she's the same age she would have been at that time. That's Hannah. We're not sure what she's looking at. She's one. Your father's crazy about you. You have a place in his heart that no one else can fill. You have a set of fingerprints. You have a, you have a unique voice that no one else has. So finally, worship is the response to the revelation of God's love for us. It's a revelation of God saying, I am the one God. I'm the only God. I'm the one who is unity and diversity. I am love. Before God gave the Ten Commandments, He said, what was the first thing God said when He gave the Ten Commandments? What did He say? Before He gave any commandment, what did He say? Huh? Yeah, elaborate. What about Israel? I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. What did you do to earn that? What did you do? I mean, how holy were you? How, how, how long was your prayer life? How free of expletives was your language? What did you do 
I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt. What did you do to earn your salvation, your redemption, that I delivered you from slavery and brought you across the Red Sea through the wilderness? What did you do? You didn't do anything in light of that. In light of all that I've done for you, have no other gods before me. In light. In light. In other words, can you give back the love that I've poured into you? Can, I, can, you, can you give that back? So worship's a bit of, I found worship is a bit of a hard bird to capture. As I studied the scriptures, the definitions are elusive. There's many Hebrew words for it, many Greek words for it, in the Old Testament and the New. So here's my working definition of Alec. And John, you guys can, you can, you can critique that when you speak and poke holes in it and whatever, but I'm throwing this out, and the rest of you can too. The worship is the appropriate giving back to God what he has first given us in response to his self-revelation and the recognition of his presence, whether perceived or not. Now, why do I say perceived or not? How many know sometimes revelation is only memory? <laughs> How many know you're going through a dark time and all you got, as the psalmist said, is, uh, I will remember somewhere back there God, God was. He showed up. He spoke. And sometimes when you're going through dark, dark time, that memory is, is incredibly important. In fact, they got in trouble when they forgot, didn't they? So acts of worship. And uh, we, we went, when we were in Switzerland in the summer, we went up to the Alps cabin, which is above the tree line. And one, sun, one night, we got the sunset, and I took about three or four co- photos, and I was putting it on Facebook this week, or last week, and... Uh, how many know whenever you post a, a picture on Facebook, it always says, would you like to say something about this photo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just found it was so annoying. It was so inappropriate. There's just times it's just the most appropriate form is just shut up. So sometimes when you're confronted with your God, with God's holiness, it's appropriate to be quiet. Are the times you dance like crazy, like David did, you kneel or bow or Prostrate yourself. Sometimes it's repentance or lament. All in the presence of God. The cry, I believe the penitent, when he got into the temple and he was praying and he said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he smote his chest. That's worship. Isaiah said, Woe is me, I'm undone. For my eyes have seen the Lord. The most common word for worship in the New New Testament means to fall down before someone and to show them homage, to kiss their hand as a sign of honor and respect. This is not common in our culture as it was in the Near East, ancient Near East and Far East. But at the core of it was the humbling of yourself before the greater one. And and there was an allegiance to that. Remember when Satan said to Jesus, all the kingdoms of this world, they'll be yours if you bow down to me. It wasn't just that Jesus would bow, as it says in Matthew, the Matthew's version. It's it's that Jesus, there was was more to it than that because it was like a knight and being knighted by the king. When you bow, you're saying, I'm yours. You have my allegiance, my life. So you bow and there's that act, but it's it's a life thing. So what Satan was asking Jesus for was not just a one-time little act. He was asking for his allegiance in a perverted way. Will you ride with me? That's kind of what he was saying. Excuse me. Oh, that'll go great on the recording. Uh, (laughs) There's snot on the mic there. 
Might have to delete that one out, lose all our credibility. All right. Um, so humble yourself. Worship is the language of heaven. I, I, Revelation 4 and 5, I just read that last night again. I just, oh, just these elders, these beasts, or the creatures before the throne. And then there's this one verse, John, I haven't figured this one out yet. There's this one verse in, in Revelation 5. It says, every creature... Every creature in heaven and in earth and under the earth said, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, you are worthy to receive glory and honor. Every creature. John Piper said the only reason mission exists is because worship doesn't. And one day worship will be restored and mission will no longer be needed. Worship is a download of heaven. You know, I've got an iPhone that they have what's called a sync feature so that whenever I want to sync my iPhone to my computer, you connect them and they go into the sync. You guys know it. You know, all your tunes that are on your computer go on your iPhone, all your addresses, your email, whatever. You know, it just syncs it. Well, worship is syncing you with heaven. Worship is syncing you with God's heart, God's idea. God has a heart for the foreigner, for the widow, for the orphan. If you're truly in worship, you become like the one you're worshiping. And there's a download of heaven as a result of worship, true worship. So worship is corporate and begins with listening, then giving back to God what he has first given us. True worship makes us more like God and brings heaven to earth. I, I had this amazing little incident. How many remember my pastoral rant, rant or sorry, lament that I did Back in November. Remember that? Some of you do. You're still traumatized by it. The very next day, and I was looking at this in my journal uh, a few days ago. And it was, I was reminded of this. The very next day, I was reading the story of the widow's might. And Jesus just got so tickled pink when he saw that little widow, and people have been putting their tens and thousands and tens of thousands and big, big bucks, right? This little widow, I mean, two mites was pretty minimal, right? It was like pennies. And he just got so excited. And he said, this little widow has given more than them all. And I heard Jesus chuckle. I, I swear I heard him chuckle. And he looked, it felt like he looked right at me. And he said, Gordy, what if I looked at your little church like that? What if your little church is like that little widow? She's given all that she has and more. And what if I view your church a lot different than earth views churches? What if I view churches differently? What if I see that your little church has given more than them all? the sacrifices that people make for this to be a house of worship, a house of prayer. I think of Lynn coming and, you know, she's got children and, and others, Steve and Karen and Alec, and they've got children and diapers up to their eyeballs and they, they struggle to get here at 9 o'clock in the morning and get ready for worship. And, 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 and Kenny was here early and I see John here early doing sound and people, there's a sense of how can we prepare this place to be a place of worship. It's not about the building, it's not about the facility, but the facility facilitates the people that are the building 
of God. And I look at our kids' workers in Leona just pouring out for our preschoolers and our other parents and our, our preteens. And, and, and I'll get in trouble if I mention too many names because there's just so many who just pour out. And the sacrifice is way beyond. I mean, every time Wade and Joanna do a sermon for me here, it's like a major project. They have to, the other parent has to coordinate three kids and, and they have to somehow find time to get the other one free so they can study for, get two, two hours. And one day Joanna was preparing and, her, and, and the homestay that they had asked her a question of the Bible and she ended up leading her to the Lord instead of preparing her sermon, you know. It's awesome. So I hear the Lord saying to us, you may have gotten tired, you may have gotten weary, but I say, would you let down your nets one more time? And we may feel like, G- like Peter that we've worked hard and caught nothing, but would you be willing to see things as God sees them? Would you be willing to be a worshiper? Because worship lets you see beyond the veil. Worship helps you see God's perspective. And when Peter saw that catch of fish, what did he do? He fell at Jesus' knees in worship. And Jesus said, fear not, Peter. From now on, you're going to catch people. So what's the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is what does loving God with all your heart corporately look like for you this year? What's it going to look like? Maybe some of you God's calling to take up some poles. Maybe it's developing your own life of worship so that you can be a blessing when you come together. For others, it's getting involved in a worship team or beginning to tithe. You say, well, I'm so busy right now. I'm a student or whatever. I have found there's been two times in my life uh, when I found it hard to put God first. One was when I'm really busy and the other was when it was tough financially. And in both those times, I, put God, I gave God the best of my day and never sacrificed corporate gatherings of worship. And secondly, I never gave up my tithes and offerings, no matter how tough financially it was. And in every situation, over and over again, I've seen God give it back way more than we could have ever poured out. You can't outgive him. He's no one's debtor. Now, we know that worship is our whole life. It's 24-7. But let me tell you something. If you don't get this then your life of worship and your time alone with God is just some kind of esoterical I worship that's lost touch with kingdom reality. So I'm going to just ask Dean and Rose if you could come. And what I'm, going to, I'm going to do something different today. Maybe somebody could just go notify Kathleen that, that we're ready to, to have communion. But for communion, I want you to allow this time to be a corporate act of worship and listening. And receiving the love of God afresh for you as you take the bread and the cup. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The love of God poured out for you. Then respond to him as the Holy Spirit leads you. Uh, if you've never had communion before, just make, I'll make it clear that this is for people who in some way, shape, or form say, Lord, I... I I believe. I trust you. I, I believe in your death and resurrection for me. If you're not sure about there yet, that's okay. You don't need to be a part of this. Just feel free to just observe and, and not feel uh, isolated or, or whatever. It's, it's, this is a place where people are free to explore and to journey. We don't want you to feel uh, pressure. But there's, there's a DVD I want to uh, play for you while we're having communion. 